Sport Calgary conducts research into sport issues in our city. Did you know that the gross municipal amateur sport product in Calgary is over $1.2 billion per year? Visit sportcalgary.ca to learn more. Hey, 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 welcome back. Uh, how are you? How are you holding up? You good? Uh, I'm glad to, I'm glad you downloaded. I'm glad you're listening. I'm glad you're here. Uh, my name is Rob Kerr. I am your podcasting friend. Um, you know, I am a director for Sport Care. I'm tied into this thing so many different ways. Um, and I love it. Love it. Glad you spent some time with it. Uh, I think you're really going to enjoy today's guest. Um, she is incredibly well-known. She is an incredible broadcaster. She is an Olympian. Um, more importantly than that, um, she's one of the best her sport has ever produced coming out of this city. And she is in charge of truly one of the great venues in the city of Calgary that's struggling right now like we all are. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But very pleased that Cheryl Bernard can join us. Silver medalist in the 2010 Olympics in curling, analyst for TSN as well. She's the president and CEO of the Canada Sports Hall of Fame here in Calgary up at Windsport. So we got lots to talk about with Cheryl. Just a reminder, uh, want the latest in Sport Calgary updates in one place? Sign up for Sport Calgary's newsletter for the latest monthly updates sent straight to your inbox. Visit sportcalgary.ca to sign up today. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, Cheryl Bernard. What do you make of all this? How are you dealing with all of this? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think you, I really do look back on sports sometimes and think that that has really uh, trained, I think, individuals how to adapt and pivot. And and, and I'm, I've always been an optimist, so I'm always a person who can see the good and see the glass half full. And yeah. so, you know, I've really tried to see some of the good out of it personally. Uh, you know, I've wrapped up all my workouts and I'm walking way more and I'm spending more time with my husband and walking the dog and and then even professionally uh, with the Hall of Fame, we're yep. working a lot on how can we come out the other side of this and be better? What are some opportunities in this? And we're finding lots of them. And, you know, the old saying, always an opportunity out of a crisis. And so I think that's uh, what you learn, I think, as an athlete. It's funny. You know, I've been doing this now for about a month. And I am more convinced than ever that athletes or former athletes or what people in in athletic pursuits might be a little bit better suited than everybody else because you just have to be right. You, you do, and I, you know, and I've always talked about the benefits of sport, and and you know, we all know the typical health perspective. Yeah. I work with teams, um, leadership roles, but I don't know if I understood until now that other really unique benefit of sport, which is. Um, having the ability to really pivot on a dime, to really see, uh, react to things, to really know how to reset goals. Right. I, I think those things you don't really realize. I mean, nobody could have ever predicted this was going to happen, this COVID no. No, crisis. No, 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 no. But, but I think you see something like this, this massive crisis in our country. And some of the things I learned through sport are becoming more valuable than I ever knew. Yeah. Um, oh, I love this question, and I'm, I'm perverse this way, but how did, when did this all get on your radar? When did you become aware that, I mean, not that we were all going to get shut down, but were you aware early on? Well, it's interesting because I was in Kingston uh, calling the Briar yep. for um, TSN, yep. uh, and we were in the middle of a Briar, and when you're in those events, you're doing two draws a day, research in the morning, and so you're kind of in a bubble. And 
I could every now and then I'd look and get news flashes that they were having uh, COVID outbreaks and that uh, mm-hmm. Europe was having issues and and I don't know though if we realized until I left Kingston uh, to head home on the Monday morning from the Briar and I got to the airport and I started to kind of read and I started to look around and realize things were different. Um, so that was kind of when it really hit me. And then we effectively shut down the Hall of Fame on the 16th of March. So that was the second time I think it really came to light that, hey, this is really happening. This is real. I'm trying to remember, though, what, because it's a TSN property as well, wasn't the announcement that they weren't going ahead with the Women's Worlds in Halifax right around the Briar, too? Well, so we went home on the Monday, yeah. and then we were supposed to turn around on the Thursday, and I was supposed to go to the Canadian Curling Championships for seniors. Right. And so I was actually going to pass on the World Women's in Port, in uh, Prince George. So the whole TSN crew was getting ready to fly out on the Thursday. I ended up going, getting ready to fly out to go to the senior Canadians. And all of a sudden, that's when the announcement came out. Uh, the senior Canadians is cancelled. The uh, women's worlds is cancelled. And then all of a sudden, it rolled out a week later. The men's yeah. worlds in Scotland was cancelled. It just, it was like the snowball effect that everything just slowly started to unravel and get cancelled. Um, I, I credit Mary Moran yesterday uh, shared this with me. It's the mystery with no history. So <laughs> tell me about, a, a, as a CEO, tell me about as a leader in business, how did you go about, you know, preparing and, and doing what you needed to do to safeguard your employees, but also to make the decisions that you have to make? Yeah, you know, that's tough. And you don't have, I guess you don't have specific training in this situation. You have training on how to adapt. And, you know, I have a great team at the Hall. I first and foremost, I'm going to say that. Um, we sat down and said, how is this going to look? What opportunity is there in this? Yeah. Um, how do we come out the other side? Uh, that was our biggest risk for us. We, you know, we are in a situation where financially most museums in this country don't have much past probably three months reserves. Right. And knowing that three months wasn't enough, how do we again pivot and change on a dime and make it longer? How do we extend our runway? And so we sat down and talked about it and we decided to physically close the hall until the end of of 2020 because the costs to run a 46,000 square foot museum are unbelievable. Mm -hmm. So that was one thing we could do. Um, Sadly enough, we had to do some layoffs and, and they will be permanent until 2021. Um, all the staff internally took 25% pay cuts. We, we sat down as a team, I think, and really discussed how do we retain a 65-year-old Hall of Fame, make sure that it stays in this country uh, for another 65 years. And so those were some of the critical decisions that you have to make, and you have to make them knowing you're doing it for the best of the, the corporation, for the best of the Hall of Fame, and for the best and the safety of the people around. I'm asking this next question as an interviewer, but also because I, I could use any advice you might have, but how do you begin to look at coming out? What's the new reality? How are we going to know what the new reality is? Yeah, yeah, I don't know what it's going to look like. I think that is, uh, if anybody knows out there, I'd like to know. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what it's that's gonna... hard for planning, right? It, like, you, you want to be, we want to be ready to turn key and here we go, but that's the, the challenge. Yeah, I think what we're doing, uh, I can't speak for everybody, we're looking at what can survive in this new world and how we think it's going to look. So we're looking at a lot of digital and not a lot of in-person. How can we share 
sports history and the stories of sport and 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 that our new class of 2020. Um, mm -hmm. How can we share that with the public without it being in person and without, um, you know, it endangering anyone or any health? And so we've had those conversations. We've also had conversations internally about how do we come back to work when they start to say it's okay to do so? Can we come back and spread out in the hall? Um, can we have two people working upstairs and maybe three people working downstairs in a larger area with a lot of distance? Yep. So, you know, a lot of those conversations, we were inducting the class. The sad part with all of this was uh, we induct a class every year and we had already uh, notified the class of 2020 that they were going to be inducted. And the announcement was going to be May 27th in Calgary at our big yep national press conference. And so um, we had to really decide, what do we do with that? And so we sat down and we came up with a plan, talked to the class and said, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna release the names to the media on the 27th of May uh, with a bios, with some small videos, and we're gonna roll your induction to 2021 because we want them to have the same incredible induction that all the last 65 classes have sure. had. Yeah. And they, you know what? They've been amazing. Our board's been amazing. Um, the Hall of Famers, even though, uh, you know, this class isn't going to be inducted until next year, they were so supportive and so understanding. And I think what I'm coming to see is a real good side of human beings in this, which you always tend to see. Hard, okay, so let's now I want to get into the, the meaty part of this. Which is which is the bigger challenge, running a Hall of Fame or running or inducting a class like coming up with the class like being on that nomination committee and having to go through it which is the which is the harder job well our selection committee is incredible yeah. and uh they went through 268 nominations this year oh. and they could only pick 11 yeah 11. like it's I don't know how they do it. I am not on that committee because um, we, the management stays off that committee. We okay. do get to step up and voice some of our opinions on who and what we think, but the committee is amazing. Uh, a lot of sports journalists, a lot of uh, broadcasters, a lot of sports historians, uh, they know what they're doing. And I can't tell you who the class no, is, no, no, it's no, no, incredible. No, 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 no. no I, <laughs> I, I look forward to it every year. I know, I know. It's a great class this year. Could you give us, I'm curious, what are your rules in terms of uh, nominations? If, if I nominated you, would you be nominated or stay on the docket for so many years? What's the what's the process for? Like, yeah, it's, it's different. You know, we've looked around at a lot of the different, you know, Baseball Hall of Fame, how they do it. Yeah. Everybody has a different system. Um, yeah. If you're shortlisted, because we induct such a small class, like it's typically only seven. Um, we allow shortlist. If you're shortlisted, your nomination stands for another year. So there's been nominations that people have been shortlisted for four or five years. Mm -hmm. um, now, once you get to the point where you haven't been shortlisted for a couple of years, the nomination drops off, but we advise the individual who had nominated that person and they can renominate again and put in right. a new application. It's a neat process. I, I'm Well, I, I, I spent a little time on the Alberta Hockey Hall of Fame, uh, and I think it's one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. When you have to evaluate somebody to somebody else, it's like picking the best of the best, right? It is. And you, and, and you know, one of the things we did, Rob, this year, well, not this year, it was actually last year, is, you know, we already know these great athletes and builders. We really know their history in sport. You, mm -hmm. you could look at, uh, who did we induct last year? Martin Brodier. Yep. Um, you know his history as an athlete. What we're really coming to realize the public doesn't know and should be shared more. So we're telling more the whole story of their entire journey. 
So once they step off the podium, we're actually now starting to ask some questions about what they've done beyond sport. And you're being inducted for the whole of your sports journey and not just that one bit about your sports um, accomplishments. Okay. That's interesting so, to me. So it's it, the totality of the life lived. Yes. And the right? impact you've had on Canadians and the impact you've had yeah. on this country, even beyond sport, because you know uh, so many athletes, once sport's done, they become ambassadors and yep. role models and educators and and, and they do that almost naturally without being asked. And it's, it's, I think the Canadian public needs to know what value they bring to this country after they're done sport. You know, it's, it's really interesting because going through this process of talking to athletes and organizers, it, it, you're hard-pressed to find a Canadian athlete who comes in, performs, and leaves, never to be heard from again, never to have impact again. It's just not the way it's done, right? Right. You're right. They... they you know, when we interview them, the class last year, we sat down when they we bring them into the hall for May for the May gala and uh, we sit down and do interviews with them and they never really talk about their sport. They talk about the impact they've had on kids after and their ability to build their sport after and, you know, they're ambassadors and, and, and they don't even seem to be as proud about their sport, but what they've done after sport. Now that you've been there for a while, do you see a backlog? Do you see an area that needs to be addressed? Are we, you know, behind in any one particular spot? No, I mean, I, I think we're slowly, I still think the issue is our class size is so small, so we don't have the ability to, you know, we represent all sports. Uh, we represent diversity and inclusion in this country. So, you know, we're inducting, uh, for the first time this year, a Special Olympian, mm -hmm. Um but that should have been done years ago, but we're really hampered by our class size. So, you know, at, at some point, I hope we can we can expand that. But that is at a cost. And those are some of the things that you have to give up when you're on a tighter budget as a, you know, a charity like ours is. Um, but we're slowly starting to feel the impact of the building we've done in the last couple of years. And we're getting a lot of corporate support. And so I think at one time, um, you know, we'll be able to step up and do larger classes. Is there a difference? And I think there is, but I'll ask you, is there a difference between making sure that we've got the right people there and, and not opening it up and making it too easy to get into? Right. Like a Hall of Fame still needs to be something that you have to attain. It is. And no, and I agree. And the guidelines are even getting tougher now yeah. that we've the order of sport because we're saying you have to be an incredible athlete but we're also saying you have to be a credit an incredible person after we're, we're really these have to be people that have changed our country for the better through sport and beyond and so i think it's going to be tougher to get in not easier that's the, you know what that is that's a pete rose rule right because everybody says well <laughs> pete rose should be in because of what he did on the field not what he did off and right. you're you're turning it around going no 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 no, no. this is the best no. of the best it's got to be a, a total well, and I think you, I actually think you engage with more individuals that maybe aren't sports fans. Because if I'm a sports fan, which I am sitting at home, yep. I look at sports athletes and think, you know, they're incredible for what they've done in, in their, their sport. They're incredible for what they've done for Canada in medals. But if I'm not a sports fan, I actually want to know that these individuals have had an impact on our country, that they go out and educate, that they teach kids the values of life and the value of playing sports, not just elite sports, not just high level sports. It's about the day to day. This is healthy. You're you're you become a great leader. You know how to work with a team. You understand responsibility and goal setting. And I think that's what our responsibility is. 
much do Hall of Fames talk to each other? Are you, are, are, yeah, do you, we do. We do talk. You? Um, you know, uh, Janet Smith, who's our our uh, VP and COO at the Hall, uh, she's been in the industry for years. She was with the Football Hall of Fame, um, so she's got a lot of knowledge. And mm. they seem to more so. I'm newer in this industry, but they seem to more stay in touch. And uh, we've got a Canadian Museum Association that we um, stay in touch with all the other museums. And even right now, uh, we've had a lot of support for the COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was it was just announced today by the federal government that the heritage uh, heritage department is going to give uh, five hundred million dollars of support to museums across this country because. You know, we've really, really been um, affected by the revenue loss. We, we've lost pretty much all of our revenues now for the rest of 2020. This, the strength of your classes, the strength of your museum, I feel, lie in the women and the builders. That I'm not sure that you'll find other, and I have not seen them all by any stretch of the imagination, but it is no. the one thing that impresses me every time I go in there that, you know, not on. You know, I'd like to think as a Canadian that we're a little more progressive than others. Um, yes. Do you, do you do you feel that way? Do you see that? Is that does that sound right to you? I do. I find the builders are more behind the scenes. Uh, you know, Doug Mitchell got inducted last yeah. year. Just incredible what he's done uh, for this country and behind the scenes. Yeah. They they are more. Uh, most of them about not being recognized. The women that we've inducted. I mean, uh, Juan Corn Miller, Indigenous water polo athlete from last year's class, incredible individual. I, I was blown away by her story and what she's done. And, you know, I, I wouldn't gender be specific gender wise to say that, you know, men or women. But I do see women, they get that recognition and what they've done behind the scenes. We really had the ability to recognize that when maybe we wouldn't have had so much. So I think it's been huge for us to do that. R- wrong for, I'm the, the wrong gender to make this statement, but so let me run it by you. It okay. just never felt like tokenism to me. It no. felt like I came in and this is the elite. They are here. You know, the right yes. people are here. Yeah. And, and I would say that even when, before I took this position two years ago, I looked at you know what the 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 incredible list of 660 Hall of Famers that we have in the hall, and I looked at that list and thought, you know, there isn't one person in there that I would kind of question. In fact, I actually was shocked that there weren't more on that list. They they just haven't had the ability to induct more. Yeah. So it is special to get in there. There is no doubt about it. And when these classes get together, that's what I think is fascinating. When they get together, so the group last year. Um, they got together for the first time in May and the stories they share and they talk about each other. I, I will never forget Brogier again. I have to tell that story. He got up on stage at the induction in Toronto last year and all the other six uh, inductees had stood up. They accepted their awards. Uh, they'd had their one or two minute speech and Brogier gets up and he said, can you stop the teleprompter? And I thought, oh, gosh, what is he doing? I was having a panic <laughs> We're on Sportsnet being broadcast and he's yeah. asked for this to stop. And he said, I just want to say I was going to stand up here and talk about what I've done. And I listened to the six in front of me and what they've done. And he said, all I ever have done is stop pucks. He said, (laughs) there's nothing impressive about what I've done beyond that, which isn't true. But he was so impacted by these other six Hall of Famers and what they'd done beyond sport. And I think that's an incredible story. Artifacts. How many, (laughs) how uh, this is a whole other, whole conversation about artifacts, right? Like how many pieces do you guys have on, on 
I guess, on tap or, you know, on location? Over 100,000. Wow. It, it's incredible. And we turn artifacts down. You do, um, eh? We do. There, okay. there, there's just becoming an issue of we need to move and, again, pivot to the other side of starting to digitize our collection. Yeah. Because, you know, I think your generation and my generation will go into a hall and wander around and think it's pretty amazing. But my kids and their kids, yep. they want that sent to them. They want stories and small clips and they want to see a baseball and they want to the story about the baseball and they want to see the hockey stick that Sidney Crosby scored the goal with at the 2010 Olympics and then the story behind it. Right. So I think we're going to have to really move hard in that direction to digitize. Now, that being said, I'm a believer that I like to see the real thing. Tactile. And I think yeah. they got to, yeah, they have to complement each other. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things we're doing is we're going to uh, start to create exhibits that travel that reach out across communities in this country. Sure. Um, but digital interactive exhibits. We just we did this cool uh, partnership with SAIT, and it was a work project for SAIT to learn real work life. Yep. And they went through the Hall of Fame, and they took the gallery. So we have a women in sport gallery, and we have a uh, horses in sport gallery, mm -hmm. and we have a slide gallery, and they took those galleries and they changed them into interactive digital kiosks that will actually travel and tell the same stories. Right. Oh. So this is this is what we need to be doing, right? Reaching out. Yeah. By the way, should point out, the hall does induct animals. Oh, yes, yes. Big, Big Ben's in, right? Big Ben, Northern Dancer's in. Yeah, yeah. There's a secret animal going in this year. Whoa, hold on. Okay, hold on. We'll have to wait till May to find out who that is. Have to wait till May. <laughs> So, Cher, what I don't know is, of the 100,000 items you have, how many of those are from inductees that they've given to you, and how many of those would be requests that the hall has made? Oh, boy, I need our curator on the line for this one, but I would 50 -50 say... 50 or? Not quite. I would say it's probably 30% what the inductees have given us, 30-40. Okay. And the balance, 60%, would be what people have said. You know, they're cleaning out their mom's basement, and right. they come across a hockey stick that's been saved for years. Amazing. You know, and then we have to source the story. And is it reasonable that we keep it as an artifact? Um, yeah. Terry Fox paraphernalia, we have so much of his stuff that we just... it's amazing and the exhibits that we could create from that would be what we really want to do is reach the 37 million canadians in our country and not just the ones that walk through our door so are you ever watching tv and a canadian does something and you go yeah we got to write a letter we got to get that they we need something are you are you in a position to do that do you make requests like that uh, you know, not as much. We seem to get the uh, okay. the other okay. way where they email us and say, we have something for you. Are you interested? Okay. Okay. There's a gentleman in Calgary, and I can't remember his name. Janice, who's our VP, knows him. And he has got one of the biggest hockey collections in his basement. And he said, just wait one day, I'll phone you. And that collection will be yours. And we're so excited. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, That's pretty what's cool. Okay, but what's the craziest thing you have in storage? Is there one thing that you guys keep talking about or you make f fun of at the coffee table? Oh, there's some strange artifacts. That are we there? Have. A lot of the shoes and stuff are strange. They're, okay. they're, they're yeah. shoes, people, skates. No, there's nothing. I mean, uh, woven basketball hoops from, I don't even know what year that was, but they're they're like baskets. and that's Oh, the peach they... baskets. Yes, yeah. Oh, oh, from Naismith. Those are amazing. Oh, wow. 
I find those incredible, those those kind of artifacts. I still go, so two years into the hall, yeah. I still wander around that facility and I still don't know every story about every artifact we have. And I'll every you know, couple days wander around, read something new on yep. one of our Hall of Famers or you know, the locker room is cool every year because we put a locker room together for the class of that year. Yep. And so they send in artifacts for that. Sometimes they're just on loan because people don't want to part with them yet. Mm-hmm. And we create this locker room and a video story about them. And it's pretty amazing. And you start to get to know these individuals very well and why they're being inducted. How often do you change? How often does stuff get moved around? It's expensive to change a gallery. It which is, is, okay. Why, yeah, okay. it is. So we don't. Um, they're more static. Okay. But that is our, you know, next, our step now, our, our kind of goal going forward is to create these digital exhibits right. that actually can change more often, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we're talking about doing a Terry Fox exhibit in downtown Calgary uh, for a three-year term. So kind of creating more um, urgency to come, a sense of urgency to come look at it. So you do a Terry Fox exhibit and you talk about his 40 years on this earth and what he's done in the 40th year anniversary of his run. And you create something like that and people come and is there for three years. And then we'll do another exhibit that would be there for three years. So we're looking at more of that model than these static galleries because they're very expensive to build and very expensive to change. Okay, I'm going to ask Cheryl, the analyst, not Cheryl, the, the president CEO, a question. Terry okay. Fox, Canada's greatest athlete? Oh, absolutely no question. Right. You know what? And he wasn't an Olympian, and he wasn't a world champion, and that's what makes him the best. But, a, I, but, but what an athlete. Like, no, when you he, look at the accomplishment, what an athlete. I It brings tears. I mean, they just announced the 40th year anniversary just the other day. Yeah. It was last week, and I sent a tweet out about it. And just the impact. There's the impact that person, that one individual yeah, yeah. had on this country. Yeah. Should be the five. This is a five dollar bill we're going to replace, right? Like I think yes, and he should be on he it. He should be on it. Absolutely. I totally agree. So I hope we get to do that exhibit because I think it will gain a lot of traction and there's a lot of great stories. I, one of the parts of the exhibit that we were talking to the Terry Fox Foundation is they have all the letters that kids wrote to Terry Fox through the years. Really. So we would like to digitize it so people can flip through Ooh. and look at those letters. Can you imagine? Oh, I no, no. When you say that, that's amazing. Like, amazing. And and we're we're almost or we are at a place now where we can do these things, right? We are. We are. We're we're and, and you know what? Again, going back to COVID, I think people are looking I'm so impressed with how people are looking at different ways of doing things and how they're converting their business. Bauer hockey now decides, okay, we made hockey masks, so we're making COVID masks. Like yeah. that impresses me more than the ones that just close the doors, hunker down and say, Oh well, we're beat. We're not. We we have so much opportunity to swing and move with this and well that's an interesting so that's interesting to me is it, with what you're talking about and space is an issue now and, and the physical tactile elements are but do you feel that part of the job of a hall of fame is also maybe to recognize moments in time do you that, that something like that could be somewhere down the line this is how we came out of it yeah, well, we're going to talk about sport, and there's going to be an asterisk on 2020, and we're yeah. going to talk about that moment in time, and we're going to talk about our class of 2020 who became the class of 2021, and we're going to talk about why didn't we induct a class in 2021? Well, because we had to roll them into 20, the 2020 class over. Right. So I think there's going to be some unique stories out of this, and I think some real wins that 
you know, people were able able to create something out of this that they never would have done had the COVID not appeared. So you have to find the good in this or it'll I, I think it'll beat you down. Cheryl Bernard is our guest. By the way, not sure what sports are provided in Calgary. Sport Calgary Sport Director will help you find the sport and the sport organization that's right for you. Visit sportcalgary.ca to learn more. This part I always feel awkward because I'm, I'm doing a promo, so I'll let you do a promo. Uh, the website for the hall? Yeah, it's uh, www.sportshall.ca. Okay, and the class of 2020 comes out May... May 27th. Okay. We'll be doing a national media release okay. and letting everybody know, and they are incredible. Okay. Growing up in Grand Prairie, <laughs> what sports did you play? Well, so I was only in Grand Prairie until I was a year old. So I'm, Well, that's I not what the bio said. Wikipedia. I know. No, I know. Sorry. It is not right. Somebody in Grand Prairie keeps going on and saying I grew up there, but I was born <laughs> there. I've been in Calgary all my life. Okay. So um, growing up in Calgary, yeah. what sports did you play? Yeah. And I played soccer. I was big into soccer, big into curling. I liked track, even though my legs are the shortest legs you probably ever see. I was a real good hurdler. I loved hurdling. Um, you know, I did as many sports as I could. My parents were fabulous. They thought, you know, they would put me into everything. And so I played as many sports as I could. And then one day I suddenly realized I don't want to play the other ones. I really want to focus on curling. And that was kind of when that light switch went off and they didn't push any longer because they mm -hmm. thought, you know what? She's good. She could have success at this. There was no Olympics then. So that was not the intent, but I loved it. I was passionate. I moved schools so I could be closer to the Crescent Height Curling Club, the North Hill Curling Club, so that I could get there after school and practice and play. And so, you know, I think that's a key for kids is give them a sample of everything. But when you see a passion or that light switch go on, then let them go. And, you know, my parents saw that and they were so, uh, so amazing. So but what age, what around what age was that? I would say it's probably 17 when I really oh, okay. said. Okay, so we're not talking about a, a six-year-old Cheryl's now full-time curling or anything like no, that. No. no, no. And they push school and yeah. and, and work, and, and, and they were very much about balance in life. Um, you know, I always believed I, – I, I started up my own business, an insurance business, yep. when I was 23, and I – you know – I, it took away from curling. I think I would have had success in sport earlier had I had the ability to, you know, to focus on it even more so. But when you start up a business at that age, um, you know, it's it's a tough job and you're young and you make a lot of mistakes. And so curling had to be put on the back burner for quite some time. But, you know, in the end, I think it was worth it. I sold that business when I was I'm trying to think now 34. And that's when I actually decided I am focusing on getting to an Olympics. Yep. I put together a team with that single focus and we ended up getting there. It took me a little while. I was 43 by the time we got there, but it was worth every second. So when you say that the switch went at 17, is it one thing? What was it that connected you to curling? What was it that you said, okay, no, this, this is the high that I get from, from being part of this. I think you know, I think the first thing every athlete knows is they're good at it. I, I knew I was decent at it. Yeah. I, I, I knew I could go places okay. with it. Uh, I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I loved it. I loved to practice. I would go for hours and throw rocks. And when you, you know, I don't know if you intuitively know that yourself at 16 or 17, 
but I knew I had a passion for it and mm. I knew, you know, I wanted to focus in soccer. I was kind of losing interest and some of the other sports, I didn't really think that was going to be my passion. And so I really believe that you just suddenly turn the corner and go, I'm pretty good at it. Now, my parents weren't crazy enough because there was no Olympics and you still can't make a living off curling or very few can. Right. Uh, but they also really pushed me to have balance in life, which I think was brilliant on their part because, you know, I always had perspective and I think that was a really good thing after losing a silver medal in 2010 and has always been a good thing in life is having that perspective that it's not everything. Were there people, were, first of all, was your family connected to curling at all? Was there any yeah, family? Oh. parents curled. I, I okay. grew up in a curling club when I was a kid, they'd go curling on Friday night and they'd leave my brother and I running around the club while they curled and then away we'd go home. So yeah, I grew up there. Competitively or socially were they curling? My mom was socially. My dad was competitive to a certain level. He he loved the game. He had a passion for it. So uh, he was pretty thrilled when we decided we were going to focus on an Olympic run and he was our biggest fan and followed us down that path. Okay. Physically or mentally was your strength early on when it came to curling? Were you really, you know, good at the the execution or did you think the game good? That's bad English. Um, Did you think it well? Yeah, no, no. I think think physically was the first part that I really got onto. I had a good delivery. I had a natural ability. I I had a good ability to get draw weight quickly. then, though, the strategy, I played for a couple teams. I played front end for a couple older teams. Yep. Um, but I got bored with that quickly and decided, you know what, I, I want to start my own team. And then I decided I wanted to skip. I think I could see I really liked the chess on ice concept of the game, that mm-hmm. you had to think outthink your players and your oppositions. And so that really fascinated me. And if you saw my bookcase at home, the amount of sports psychology books that are in this house, um, really? I have a true fascination for that true fascination for sports psychology did that early on did that come where where does that come from oh i went to the first my first canadians in 1992 yeah so i would have been 23 right and i uh, was already reading sports psychology books then and then after that i 96 i went to the second um scotties uh, canadian championships and we had a sports psychologist penny worthener who is the Dean of Kinesiology here at the oh, University okay, of Calgary. That, yeah, okay, that's why I know that name. Yeah, okay. Yep, she's worked with me for years since then, since 1996. She came to us, with us, sorry, to the Olympics in 2010 and to the trials in 2009. She's fabulous. So if you don't mind me asking it this way, Cheryl, were you? did you seek out the sports psychology to solve a problem or were you looking for an edge? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I, I was looking for an edge. I okay. thought, and I've always been that way, that, you know, how can I be better? What can I do? You know, the, I was always chasing somebody, you know, whether it was Sandra Schmerler and people yeah. would talk about her mind on the ice and her ability to focus. And so I thought, well, I can do that. I'll, I'll, I'll read some books. I'll figure it out. I'll get a sports psychologist. It was always trying to find that edge uh, that would put you kind of on top of the, 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 the mountain. So all of those books, how much of that has changed in three decades? Like, is is it, or does it? Not a lot. You know, sports psychology doesn't change. I, I think, you know, the things I see is people having the ability to focus after a loss or a miss. Yeah. That, that's always going to be a tough one. But these all apply to life. These sports psychology books and what I learned from them, I've applied in business. I've applied in my daily life because they do all apply. 
We're all going to get beat down. We're all going to fail. I mean, the best line my dad ever said to me is, you never lose. You're either going to win or you're going to learn. So make it worthwhile. And that's life. All of those books on those shelves, do they all have something to give or are there quacks out there? <laughs> well, I read a few that, and I won't say any names, that yeah, I yeah. thought, this is beyond what I can probably do and believe. But I think 90% of them that are good books, solid psychology, sports psychology books, you know, fo- refocusing, uh, concentration, those are kind of the key things in sport. Uh, you've got... Oh, I'll never forget the Vancouver Olympics, and I'm so glad of the books I'd read on on focusing from distractions. But you've got 10,000 loud fans mm-hmm. inside of the Olympic venue when we're trying to curl our first game, and we come from a sport that's like golf, where it's dead silent when you're you know going to throw. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we're at the venue in Vancouver, and there's thousands of fans, and it's loud, and I can't even hear my teammates. And I thought, this is what all that training has been for. And it it served me well. That goes back right to when we started this podcast and what you said about being an athlete, because that is this is not what we're going through right now. We're not prepared for. We've never gone through. And that's the best example I think you can make of, "Uh uh-oh, this is not what we're used to. This We haven't been here before, right? But how do you spin? And how do you adapt adapt like it's and you have to in this life and I think I don't get too bent out of shape about many things anymore because of the life I've been through and and we all have I have nothing special in my life above anybody else but I think I've I've dealt with loss I've dealt with uh, perspective issues I've dealt with you know I think the one thing I still thought I would be better at is when I took this job at the hall you know so at this time that's two years ago so I'm 51 years of age and I thought I would have the ability to have balance better. Mm-hmm. And it's my biggest disappointment in life is, and I think it's the athlete in me, is when I focus on something, I'm all in. And it's at the cost of a lot of other things. And I have so wanted to change that. And I thought at 51, I'm sure I won't be bad. Because I remember when I started my business at 23, you know, a lot of things fell to the wayside because I was just so intensely focused on the business and making sure it succeeded. And so now I get to the hall at 51 and I think, ah, I'll be fine. I mean, I'm old, I'm mature, I should have this all nailed. Well, I don't. And I, you know, I walked into that business and I was seven days a week for the first year. And it was like I couldn't let it go. And that is still a a work in progress for me and it will always be. Or is it something that is part of what drives you? Is the (laughs) the thought of finding, because there's always the unattainable, right? Right. That's yes. what drives somebody yes. is balance unattainable, perhaps. Yes. And, and and maybe it is. But I do think the thing that you have to be so careful of is those around you, you know, your family and your sure. friends and people that, yeah. you know, what I did in business is and we talk about it all the time. I never want that on my gravestone. It's that's not I want to be known as a good spouse and a good friend and and a, a good daughter. And, and so those are the things that are really important to me. So I have really it's a battle. It's a day battle for me that I really try to win at (laughs) I don't know how well I'm doing I asked my husband now and then and he's like well I haven't really seen you for the last five days so maybe you gotta dial it back a bit and and I do I try to listen as a competitor are you superstitious I had some funny ones I always changed my underwear I want that to be known I was never one of those (laughs) socks right Socks was one. I had a few superstitions. I remember Red Deer curling. Uh, we were at a big event there, and we ended up 
we had a two game started off with two game losses. And, and so the third game loss, you're out. So we parked in the parking stall for the third game and we parked in front of this little tree and uh, we go in, we play our game, we win. Next day we drive in to park. I'm like, park in front of that tree. We need that tree. Well, it got hilarious that we had to park a half mile away, a game number five or six, because the parking lot was full and all the trees were gone. So we had to find some tree to park in front. I don't know. Those things always, I think after, what was I doing? <laughs> uh, well, no, I, I just wonder about, you know, preparation and, and what one needs, right? And yeah. yours being a, a, a team sport, yes. you know, there's only so much that you can do as an individual. Right. So I'm just wondering what that what that process was like for you in in competition. Yeah, I you know I think you really have to with a team trust that the other three are doing their job and yeah. they're preparing. They need to prepare. I think that was one of the biggest things. And I'll tell you, our Olympic tre- team um, they all had such a work ethic and and goal setting uh, opportunities. They were so good at that. And so I think from that point on, it's just preparation. I could tell going into an event, I wanted to be nervous. That's always good. Mm-hmm. Um, not too nervous, but to a certain level. And then I knew I was prepared. And I think that's really all any athlete can ask is if you did the practice beforehand, you did everything you could, your nutrition was good, you got the sleep you could, then once you get to the event, you have to let everything go and you have to just say i've done all i can now enjoy this ride and i think that mentally frees you up to play well and uh and it was always something we tried to use more important to make the perfect shot or more important to win 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 Win. okay yeah and were you always that way was it always that way yeah yeah because i mean it's an interesting game right you can roll 50 percent as a skip and still win a game so it's the shots you make when you need under pressure Mm mm-hmm uh, so it's, but, but so win, win for sure is the outcome you want. And as a team, it might be my third that makes a game winning shot and I just follow up, but that, that's really what, uh, what you want to do is win. That's the ultimate goal. We, as the public and as the media, we get to know you most likely when you arrive at the national competition, at the Scotties, maybe at the provincials. What you talked about when you were young and you said, I want my own team and I want to skip. How difficult a decision is that to make, and, and how how difficult is it to go to, to do that? Can you just one day wake up and go, yeah, I'm going to start a team? Yeah, back then it was it was more difficult because you were expected as a young curler to put in the time under some older players, some players that have had success, that skips that have had success. You needed to come out of juniors. And you needed to play lead and second. And so I didn't last very long doing that. So it was a little bit maybe ahead of the curve where I said, you know, I don't want to do this. I want to create a team and do it my own way. Now that doesn't happen anymore yeah. because I think the university championships and the, the university programs and the junior programs allow young kids to come out of juniors. They're ready to compete at a high, high level already. So you know, you're seeing more of those teams either stay together or they come out of juniors and they say, I'm going to skip when I come out of juniors. And so I think when I did it, it was a little unique probably, but now it's not so unusual. Knowing what you know now, how difficult is it to put a good team together and, and how much advice would you give younger self starting your first team? Yeah, it's a good question. It's hard for me. This is curling's turned into a business. Yep. And so... And I understand why I completely get the money that's on the line and why, and it's cutthroat. And I don't mind 
it's like hockey, you know, you players that aren't performing or they're not bringing what is necessary to the team they have to be let go. And when I created a team for 2010, I did it the other way. It was based on friendships, people that I thought we had the same goals and focus. And I thought the other part could come. We could train them to be high level performers. So I think that's changed. I understand why. Um, but at this point, I still think there is something said, and most certainly in women's curling. Men's curling is a little different. Okay. I, I think just the way they think and how they can let go of things. I think women need that, a little bit of that friendship out there, a little bit of that belief out there, and it's not so much a business for them. So, you know, I think a combination of both, just that you've got the highest level of talent that you can get, but believe that you can train talent. Believe that if you've got the basics and you've got that person you trust and those people that you know are working hard toward the same goal, that maybe the rest of it can all come. Um, so I, I would put a combination of both in there when I created a team if I was doing it today. Yeah. I, I've always wondered about that, right? Like yeah. what, what goes into a – and it, 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 did it change a little bit at the la, you know the end of the 90s and the early part of the 2000s? Did, did the, the kind and then the reason I asked that was, if I remember correctly, it was Randy Furby's rink, and then it became Dave Nettowin's rink. And I'm just wondering if we went through a bit of a transition in the sport. Yeah, we did. I think I think there was a, a transition on how teams were built and a transition on the fitness level. And then what I think happened too is when the fitness level stepped up because. You know, the, the the way people looked at curlers for many years was, you know, Ed Wernick and they were beer drinking and smoking. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. it, it uh, incredible players, but that was the way the game was. And then one day that kind of went away. And now the fitness, it was finding that edge again, Rob. So, so now somebody sure. goes, you know what? We could be better if we were fitter. So now they focus on that training. Well, there's some players back then that went, no, this is not for me. I don't believe in it. So they fall by the wayside or teams decide, you know what, we don't see the game the same way. So I, I think over the years, it's been this slow transformation to what you see now. And some players didn't want to work with sports psychologists. That was unheard of in male teams for probably till about 10 years ago. And now most of them work with them. Not not unlike golf. No, really, no. not unlike golf. Golf Very went through the like same golf. thing, right? Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's an easy, Okay, you use the word cutthroat. That reminds me. So tell me about getting into broadcasting. <laughs> oh, wow. That was, that was a, um, I had no idea. And you know, it's funny. They phoned, TSN phoned and said, hey, would you come and do, um, uh, Linda Moore is, has, isn't well, and would you come and do the Canada Cup? And they phoned me in, uh, it was about October, and the Canada Cup was in December. And I said, well, you know, when's my training? And they said, oh, no, 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 there's no training. You just come and we'll see how you are. And I'm like, well, you got to give me some training. No, no, it'll. we'll see how it goes. I didn't understand any of that until I asked my producer probably two years after I started. I said, why didn't you guys train me? Why didn't you guys give me some? He said, because, again, this goes back to curling and teams. He said, because you actually had to fit in with Vic and Russ. You yep. can't train that to someone. Like He said, we could bring some person in, and that they wouldn't fit with that team. So we wanted to see if you fit. And then if we saw that that chemistry was there, then we could start to train you on some things you needed to do because I had no training in media. The most I had was getting doing an interview. That would have been it. Right. So chemistry was critical, and I didn't understand why. I thought you just went up there and talked curling, and it's pretty easy. But you spend hours together in a booth, and it has to work, and you can't force it. Did you like it right away? 
Honestly, no. Yeah. No, I didn't. I, I, I thought, oh, this is great. I've retired from the game. I get to stay in the game. Well, it wasn't the game. I wasn't with my peers. Um, they now kind of looked at me a little different because they didn't know what I was talking to them about. Would that be repeated on air? So it took a while for me to be comfortable in that role and uh, and to get gain trust with all the people, which you know I have. I, I understand what can be repeated and what can't, and I respect that. Um, and I think what I've learned over the years where I come from on air is that uh, people are trying their best out there. I was one of them, and, and I'm not a harsh critic in the booth. I've, I'm not built that way. Yeah. I know people are trying to do what they can. They make mistakes. We're there to point them out, but we're not there to slam players down. These are not multimillion-dollar athletes, and, and they deserve to be supported out there. And so I try to go down that path. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about is that, that idea of, you know what the pressure's like. You've been there. And that finding that role of, of criticism versus critiquing, right? Yeah. And that's that's such a fine line, I think, for a former athlete. It it's it's hard because you just tend to know. I remember I remember listening to broadcasts from the twenty ten Olympics or I listened to a game from the trials and you know, some of the criticism and you know your your friends are listening and your family and your parents and I've been one who really, I, I can reframe a lot of stuff. I think it's just a natural thing with me to say, you know, I think he would have preferred something else in this situation. Um, so I, it's the way I'm always going to be. And if it didn't fit in the booth, then I understand that maybe they needed to move on and find somebody else. But I'm now going to be going into my seventh year next year. And, and it's worked well. And, and, and I do love it now. But it did take a lot of time. Are you a, a, are you preparation person do you put a lot of time into preparation or do you rely on you know what your experience is more yeah it's it's definitely so as far as curling and the strategy that's all just here and you just it's it's instinctive but I, i have a horrible memory with stuff so i always have to look at the teams for the next event and kind of review you know how many times have they won the world and how you know there's some analysts that are they, they just have that all there and they can just pull it out. This guy's a five-time world champion. I do not have that gift. So I do have to do a lot of work in between to, um, you know, to research what they've done that year in curling and make sure I have those things in front of me when I'm calling games, because I think that's important. And, and I really want to know that as far as what shots are there to call and what are the options, mm. those just come to your mind. You just, you, the best advice I was ever given was, you know, you are seeing something on the screen, talk about that on the screen. That's what the fans at home are seeing, and that's what they want you to explain. Um, you know, I think the yeah. toughest thing is curling is the diversity of the fan base as far as knowledge. You're talking to people who have just turned the TV on and have never watched curling before, and my job is to hook them. And you're talking to high-level competitors that have played this game for years and they don't want to be talked down to. So it's a real tough uh, balance to be able to, that, to to engage that spectrum of fans. Well, and I think the other lesson I learned was you do not disrespect that fan base either. Because while no. you may grow up in a big city, it may not be a big deal. It rules in rural Canada. Like it, it <laughs> the combines, not to make a joke, but the combines and the coffee shops clear out when the Scotties and the, the Briar are on. That's just the reality oh. of it. Well said, and you, and you have to respect that those people, and you want to gain new fans, yeah, and you want to gain new viewers, but you want to talk to the people that are always there for you, 
I wonder what it's going to be like now, um, you know, with those live big events going forward after this crisis. It's something I've put a lot of thought into wondering, you know, what that'll look like. It, well, I mean, one of the best pieces of media advice I was ever given is you don't want to cover the briar in your own town. Um, and, no. and that and that, you know, but that's what it was. It was unique. Scotties were you. Curling is a unique sport to cover. It is a social yeah. event. It is about being there. And yeah. and, and I, I'm, I'm the same way. Just just one on the preparation, though, because and, and it's not like you came over from, you know, baseball or hockey or something like that. But I've always marveled at the ability that you have you, you, broadcasters in curling have to well, we just called that. You know, on this sheet, now we're moving over here, and you keep going. And, you know, a, a hockey broadcast team will do one game, and they may not do yeah. one for two more days. Like, you get into those tournaments, and it's go, 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 go. Oh, it, it's incredible. We talk about it often because we do 19 games in 10 days. Yeah. So it's almost it's two games a day, um, which are long. And, and you know, you go to the venue. So say a game, we do the 1 p.m. game, and we do the 7 p.m. game. You get to the venue about two hours before the game. Mm-hmm. So you're getting there at 11. And by the time and you never leave, it's it's Groundhog Day all over again. And you prep and you go on air and you do openings. And then in between, you grab something to eat and then you prep for the next game. And by the time that game's done, that's a three hour broadcast. And you get home and back to bed. It's midnight and you get up and you do it all over again for hours. It's incredible. What's the what, what, where, what's the state of curling right now? As you look at it, is it in a good place? I mean, COVID-19 aside, I'm just saying, you know, right now, are we in a, a, in a, in a good spot or do we have up-and-comers? Do we have growth potential? Yeah, I think in the junior area, we're in really good shape. So I think uh, between the university ad championships, the university programs, the high school programs, I think we're really doing our junior programs across this country. The teams coming, when you now watch a Canadian junior championship, these players are phenomenal. They Some of them could compete at the men's or women's, Briar or Scotties. So I think they're doing an amazing job with that. Um, my concern probably with curling is what's happening, the separation between the elite and the average, and how do we engage more players? Because once they're done um, playing a junior level, if they're not going to play elite elite, but they still want to go into play downs and they still want to go to a, a provincial championship, how mm-hmm. do we convince them to continue playing? Because the problem is they're going to pay their $350 team entry to go play against Kevin Cooey and Brendan Botcher, and they're not going to get out. So what's happened over the years is people have just stopped entering. They've just said, you know what? It's too tough. The competition's too tough. And so at some point we have to take that elite group out of the mix because they are professionals now. Yeah. That that one percent, they're, and and so somehow we need to separate that so that maybe the average plumber can still get to go to a briar. Because I used to love those stories where, you know, the, oh, the, yeah. the eye doctor or the plumber, he'd been playing for years, and he got to go to a briar, and God, you know, you just could see the emotion. I'm not sure. I know that these guys all love going to the briar, the Jacobs and the Cooies, they love it. But I'd still like to see some kind of separation where maybe the Canada Cup is, you know, our championship to send our team to the world. And mm-hmm. maybe the Briar, the, the elite professional teams, they aren't allowed to play in it. I, it's controversial. It's I don't know what the answer is, but we need to look at it to keep players in the game after juniors. But you're not alone on an island on it. Other people are talking about this. 
Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, no, there's everybody's trying to figure out the way to do it. How do we do it? How do we build? I mean, I think they're doing really good in the grassroots. I've been impressed with the players coming up, but I do think we need the ability to retain players. You know, so you go to work when you're 23 years of age, you want to be an engineer and you go through school yep. and now you want to stay curling, but you don't want to give up and be a full time curler. That's the group we're losing because they're going, you know what? If I can't play full time and not work, mm -hmm. then I really can't do this. So I have to work. I want to have a job. I want to go to university and we're losing that group and I don't know how to get them. Explain to me Las Vegas. <laughs> I, I don't no. I don't get it. The only equivalent I can make is when the CFL put teams in the United States, except this is working. It seems like it's working. I can't explain Las Vegas because I've never seen anything like it. Like I, we, the first year we went there, I thought this is going to be a joke. And we go to the first 8 a.m. in the morning draw in Vegas. They have an 8 a.m. draw. The stands are packed. And it's, it, it's mayhem. I, uh, I have never seen anything like it. I think it just works that you got a lot of Canadians deciding it's a great vacation idea. So we'll go watch curling in Vegas. So they show up there. Yeah. Uh, hysterical what people do and curling rocks with drinks in it and they never missed a draw most of those fans they were pretty incredible and then you know once once um uh we had the the success that the u.s team had at the last olympics mm -hmm. then now you've got u.s fan base is going oh, i want to go to that it's just it's incredible how it's grown there can it be mimicked or, or repeated somewhere else do you think well, there were discussions about maybe New Orleans, which I think would have been really fun. <laughs> Whoa, okay. I thought that would be good. I think you need to find and maybe a Phoenix where you've got, you need a substantial amount of Canadians yeah. still. I still think you need Canadians, but maybe you find a vacation place, Palm Springs, Phoenix. So I think they can. They just, they need to work on that and figure out how to do it. I My suggestion was they needed to do it on a cruise ship. So, but <laughs> that, that went south in a hurry here a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that won't work now. No. But, although we probably could get one cheap. <laughs> um, I have been fortunate to travel around mostly in the hockey circles, but what what really is neat to me is the places that I go, the arenas that I've seen with markings. Where is the craziest place you have curled, or cra not craziest location, but the craziest venue, I guess. Craziest, well, it had to be, I mean, craziest venue from a sound perspective had to be the 2010 venue. In, 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 right, but I was thinking, you did you do any kind of, you know, uh, uh, charity events or something in a, in a hockey rink with or in a shopping mall or stuff like that? Uh, yeah, no, we went to, uh, so my husband and I, my husband plays the game as well, and after 2010, we got a call from um, the California Curling Association. I did not know there was such a <laughs> And because uh, they knew we had a condo down in San Diego. So they said, would you guys come down and would you give us some lessons? So, of course, I don't think about the fact they don't have dedicated facilities there. I just think, oh, sure, this would be great. So when we get there, they said, do you guys mind waiting a little bit? We have to get the rocks out of the freezer. And I'm like, and we're at a hockey rink. Yeah. So I said, the rocks? She goes, well, we just get to use when there's no hockey games on. We just get to use the hockey ice. I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. So. They go to the deep freeze and they've stored all their eight curling stones in the deep freeze. So they log them out onto the ice. <laughs> My husband and I are looking at each other going, oh, God, this ought to be good. 
And so we, I decided to slide to try the ice to see what it's like. And it was like going over molehills. I slid up and down like hockey ice. You guys got a problem. It's not flat. No, it's not. <laughs> no, and the Zambonis run ridges into it. Yep. Like it's the worst stuff I've ever curled on in my life. So, so uh, needless to say, it was very hard to teach the game. I mean, how do you make a shot when... I'd throw a rock and it would hit one of the Zamboni ridges and it would fall back about four feet. I couldn't make a shot up there. Sure, sure. <laughs> so that was pretty unusual for me. What, who's the? What's the best country not named Canada when it comes to curling? Well, you're, you're probably not necessarily just... in the, but but just in the kind of in the way they embrace the sport, the you know the facilities, those types of things. Well, the birthplace has got to be Scotland has to be, you know, the, okay. the, the, the level of teams and even they love the game. Okay. Sweden is interesting because they create unbelievable superstar teams, but the game isn't really that big in Sweden. They always talk about coming over here and they're like rock stars here. But yet when they're in Sweden, it's like, ah, yeah, OK, good. You're a good curling team. Right. You're Olympians. Uh, so I would say Scotland. Okay. Um, Japan is interesting because they do have a cult following the the mm. Japanese Fujisawa, which is the women's Japanese team that lost the world championships. They have they they're like rock stars in Japan. People just absolutely love them. They can't get away from the fan base. They actually come to Canada to train so that they can get some privacy. Are you a, a former oh. retired curler? <laughs> I'm a former ret- I seem to keep coming back. Well. <laughs> I know. Uh, is this the recent announcement? Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> I I don't. It's pregnant. People are getting pregnant. What yeah, do I well, do? That, and probably more now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Very true. I yeah. I mean, I got a call from from uh, Laura Walker's team about two months ago, and they said this isn't public knowledge, but and now it is. Laura is pregnant, and she'll be due in September. What are you doing next year? And I said, no, I just went through. I did that this year for yep. for uh, a team here for Scheidegger's team, and I said, I, I think I'm done. And they said, well, just think about it. Like we'll let you design our schedule, whatever amount of playing you want to do. Would you consider it? So I thought about it for a while and talked to my husband, and I I just still want to play the game, mm-hmm. and you know, it's an opportunity to play in a condensed time frame, and then I can hang it up and go into the booth. And, and you know, what I thought this year is by playing that it also made me better in the broadcast booth. Mm-hmm. So that's part of my idea behind it too, is that I think it makes you better and keeps you current. I just love it. Like I, I, I gotta be honest with you. I think it's really cool because no, it does. It keeps you current, but you still got the drive. You still got the passion. It's, it, it, you know, there used to be those old boxers, right? They, they're out past their prime. They're out there just to collect. This isn't about collecting a paycheck. I think it's really cool. No, it's not about a paycheck. Well, not I'm... curling, no. Yeah. <laughs> right? And you know what? I promise you when I can't make a shot anymore, I won't say yes anymore. But I still feel like most certainly at the skip level, you have a longer shelf life, I think. Okay. I think, you know, you don't, you're not sweeping. And thank God, because that wouldn't be pretty. But... I can call the game. I think I'm smarter from being in the booth. I yeah. actually think I've seen a little bit more of the game from a broader sense. Um, and I still love to play, and I miss teams. I miss the game. Well, and that, But it's funny. It doesn't matter. Even individual, as I've gone through this journey, I've talked to sprinters, and I've talked to long-distance runners, and it's amazing to find out they have teams. They have a coach, and they have a sports psychologist, and they have yeah. you know guys that they train with and stuff like that. There's We just don't value team enough it is so important no 
I had a tough time. I was inducted into the Alberta Sports Hall of Fame, um, and when they made the phone call, I had a really tough time accepting the nomination, and it's because I can't curl alone. I can't yeah. win an Olympic silver medal alone. Um, you know, so th those are some of the things that I bring from the sport world that I think, you know, and, and our coach, Dennis Balderston, who had coached us for oh, probably 13 years, he didn't get a medal at the Olympics in Vancouver. And I uh, was so shocked. I had no idea. I didn't know that didn't happen. He's part of our team, an integral part of our team, and didn't get a medal. And that's one of the things I would speak up for a lot. I know it's difficult because sometimes you bring coaches in for, you know, just that period. But I still think it's something that should be considered. It's great. You know, it's funny you say that because Jesse Lumsden talked about the alternates didn't get medals at the Olympics, no. and they're so important in the training, and they're there in case, right? It's. Yep. It, it. I don't think. The, the Olympics is a great event, not taking anything away from it, but it's also a harsh event in some cases, too. Oh, it is. It's, oh, that, yeah, that's the most pressure I've ever been under. Um, really? Yeah, and harsh from a media perspective, too. Yeah. Uh, you've got media that you don't know, right? I Over the years of playing, I got really comfortable with media I knew, and I trusted them, and yeah. we built relationships, and now you're exposed to media from across the world, mm. media from other countries, and we experienced some pretty shitty things during mm -hmm. the Olympics that were done intentionally. And, you know, so I have a different view on it. I, I think it's it's an interesting uh, experience to have. But, man, it's 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 enjoyable, but it's hard. It's harsh. OK, I'll bite. What what did some, you felt like you got submarined a little bit? Well, there was one time when um, there had been some discussions, but Corey hadn't been playing really well the first couple of days. She'd been struggling. And I think her of all of us on the team, our lead, Corey, was uh, probably the most inexperienced. So you've got to you got to understand there would be nerves. And she was getting her feet under her. But there are now some discussions start happening because now you're not your you don't own your team anymore. It's everybody has an opinion. Mm -hmm. They should put the alternate in. Let the alternate play for a few days. Take bench the player. So we were going through the mixed media zone after the Olympics. So this was day three or four, and Corey was starting to get better, but you go through together as a group. And the, this one uh, guy from the UK, uh, he stopped me and he said, and Corey was right there and he did it intentionally. He said, so rumor has it that there's discussions about you benching the lead to put in your alternate because she's been playing so poorly. What are your thoughts on that? And you know, you've got her standing there. She left in tears. And, you know, I look at that. It's intentional to get a good story. It's harsh in front of a player. Um, you know, I, but I've also learned, I got a lot of media training there that um, you didn't have to answer any question that was ever answered to you. You could answer, if somebody said, what do you think about it? You could say, you know what, we're playing so well and feeling so good. You didn't have to ever answer that question. And right. so, you know, I chose not to address it. Um, and then later on I did, I actually said, you know, we're a team. We support each other out here. Corey will get herself to that level. And you know what she did? She played phenomenal from the halfway point right through to the end of that, that Olympics. And so it was great to see. Do you, do you, do you buy, I, I uttered that phrase, like, you know, you always want to co cover the briar that's not in your hometown, right? Would it, would that team been different at all in a different venue? Because there was a lot, I mean, a lot of athletes talk about it. Like, when you went to Vancouver, you were the show. Like oh. you said, 10,000 people, stuff like yeah. that, right? Yeah, it, it, you know, it was hard being the hometown team. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. we were, we were the pressure is immense. I mean, 
our sports psychologist really put it well about two weeks before we left. She said, you have a choice. And I loved her for this. She always gave us choices. And I think it really allowed you to look at things the right way. She said, you can view the 30 million Canadians that are cheering you on as a positive or as a negative. She said, you can either say, this is awesome. We have 30 million fans or, oh my gosh, we have 30 million Canadians expecting us to meddle. And so, you know, we thought long and hard about that. And we went out there saying how fortunate we were to have so much support. And, uh, and I think that actually that decision, that conscious decision to view it as support allowed us to stand on a podium. I don't know if we would have, had we not embraced it and understood that it was a great thing. Right. So yeah, different. Um, I'll, I'll, preface this question by saying for me there's nothing better than an arena in the at the at the beginning of the day with nobody around with the lights out because you don't know what can be painted on that rink what could happen it anything could happen and it's just the greatest feeling in the world Cheryl what's the greatest part of curling for you what where is the best where do you find the peace in curling you will laugh at this, but I would go in the morning at seven o'clock leading up to the trials in the Olympics and I'd throw rocks in an empty uh, curling club by myself and I'd be out there for an hour. The club would open the doors for me and it was my time. I loved it. Um, and I think always even when I stepped out into the ice to play a game because you have to put aside life. And for two hours, I was just a curler competing yeah. and I had no other responsibilities. I couldn't answer my phone. I couldn't respond to emails. Uh, it's heaven just being out there and playing the game or practicing. Didn't laugh at all. Got a little shiver down my back because <laughs> you try to tell kids, and it, you, 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 we want to give kids everything, right? We want to tell them all the you, you stand up there and you go, kids, when you're my age, da, 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 da. and I try to explain to kids, like, just enjoy. Just oh. be there. Just take a look at it. Just be yeah. the only person in it. It does not have to be a game. And to no. hear you say that is, is, is awesome because I see it. I can feel it right yeah it, it 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 is was the coolest time for me even lunch hour you know this year i played for Scheidegger's team and i would race from the hall to the curling club at lunch and the minute i'd get out in the ice it was like i take this big breath and i just throw rocks for 45 minutes and it was just my place it was a happy place for me and it always will be it, it will always be that way all right my last question for you so when i ask everybody i don't put any parameters on it i will ask you and you give me your answer Give okay. me your hidden Calgary gem. Give me your hidden Calgary gem. Oh, boy. Well, Canada Sports Hall of Fame. <laughs> I buy it. <laughs> All right. There. I got away with that one. <laughs> I'm a little biased. I think it's an amazing Calgary gem. That I do, not too. That people yeah. know about. I, it's, it's incredible, and I can't wait until we have the opportunity to be bigger than we are and to, to open our doors to more people after this is all over. Thank you. I have so thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It's a pleasure to be able to to kind of pick and prod and, and spend some time and, and learn. And, and I learned so much today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for spending time with me. Uh, thanks for having me, Rob. And thanks for taking me back and, <laughs> and talk about all the current things. And uh, you're a true gem. I appreciate it. Cheryl is so much fun. I, this conversation was so good. Um, I, I love the conversations where you come away, go and learn. You, you know, I've learned something. And I did. Um, I believe I've talked to Cheryl a couple times in the past, but this was fun where you can actually spend some time real honest. I thought she was really raw. Uh, it was just great, great sport conversation, which is what we're trying to do here on the original six 
Feet Conversation podcast. If you enjoyed Cheryl, you probably would enjoy uh, Cassie Campbell Pascal. You probably would enjoy Mary Moran. You might even like Jesse Lumsden. You might even throw in a little uh, Al Coates or Peter Marr in there. Those are the types of guests we have and continue to have. We drop them every day here at sportcalgary.ca, but you can subscribe at Spotify and Apple podcast. That's how you can get the latest uh, every day right there. You don't even have to work anymore. It's just right at your fingertips. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. I'm Rob Kerr. This has been an original Six Feet Conversation podcast at Sport Calgary.